Well, this evening I'm excited to be able to uh, pick up where we left off last week in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Um, Now, if you missed last week, I just need to do a little bit of review because it's so important to understand that the background for John chapter 7 and all the events in it is this feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three main feasts in the Jewish calendar. There was Passover, Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles, which was actually uh, celebrated uh, just a few weeks ago in early October. Tabernacles, uh, first of all, by the time Jesus was around, celebrated the harvest of things like grapes, which turned into wine and, and olives, and just the fruitfulness of the land. But much earlier on, the Feast of Tabernacles was instated by God to help the Israelites remember the time when he rescued them out of Egypt and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years living in tabernacles, which is a fancy word for tents, I guess. They didn't have REI back then, so it was just like sticks and leather and all this kind of stuff. So anyway, they lived in these tents and God provided for them, gave them bread in the form of manna and he gave them these quails. I wonder if they're like Cornish game hens falling out of the sky, but he gave them this meat out of the sky. He gave them water out of a rock in the middle of the desert. It was a great time of celebration. Of the three feasts, this was the most popular. By the time Jesus was around, though, Feast of Tabernacles had taken on a new meaning. And that new meaning wasn't just to remember God's deliverance, but it was to look forward to a new deliverance, an escape from the Roman Empire. The day when God would come in fullness and His kingdom would come displace all other kingdoms. And there would be peace in the world. Now, this festival lasted seven days. Seven days. Jerusalem, which normally had 80,000 full-time residents, during this festival would have swelled to, some people say, over 200,000 people converging on this city. And one of the coolest things for the people, I don't get this, but it was really cool for them, was this water-drawing ceremony. Every day, the first six days of the festival, a priest would take a golden pitcher, go to the pool of Siloam, which is right outside the temple, fill up this pitcher, and walk it in this grand procession to the altar. Pour the water over the altar and wine over the altar. They would say prayers. The water representing life, the water representing God's presence as He created water out of a rock. And the people were... uh, would have gone crazy over this. It was a big deal. But on the seventh day, the seventh day, everybody who was able would have come out to watch the water drawing ceremony. It was the final day of the festival. Imagine tens of thousands, over a hundred thousand people waiting for the water drawing ceremony. On the seventh day, the priest would dip from the pool of Siloam in the golden pitcher just like normal, but a grand procession would circle the altar seven times. All of these thousands of people would be waving these lulabs, which are palm branches, and citrons, which are these these bunches of citrus fruit that kind of look like a strange lime lemony thing. I, I saw them on the internet. Anyway, citrus fruit. And they're waving these things, and the processional's coming through. At the same time, in the court of women, which is also in the temple courts, there are four gigantic candelabra. They're full menorahs, so they've got all the, the, the wicks going. Now, these, these four candelabras were so large that the young priests, this was the job for the young guys, they had to get up on ladders. 
120 logs of oil per wick. And that, that equals about 12 gallons of oil per wick. And by the way, the wicks were made out of the priest's underwear. I don't know. I'm just saying. That's just one of the things that I learned that I thought you might need to know. But anyway, these, these wicks are floating in the menorahs. And there's 12 gallons of oil. And some people say, I think it was Josephus said, that you could see Jerusalem from 100 miles away when these underwear were on fire. But, and I don't know if that's really true. But you get the point that these things are so bright... The brilliance is all over the temple. The light dancing. People waving lulabs and citrons and priests circling around. And I guess it was just an electric atmosphere. Well, anyway, you remember from last week, it was on this seventh day that Jesus stands up in the midst of this festival, the water-drawing festival. And he says, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, from the very core, will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. Living water represented the spirit of the living God coming to dwell in people. Amazing. Amazing. Last week we we went into great detail about how this means that Jesus, even today, can satisfy your deepest thirst. Your deepest thirst, which I think is to have right relation with God. Our deepest thirst is to know our Creator, to know we're loved. Well, that's a huge bomb to drop, isn't it? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? You know, I was talking to Brian this week, and I said, you know, I love preaching through the Gospel of John. We're starting to learn the whole story and how it all fits together. But each week, it's just Gospel, 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 isn't it? It's almost the same message, repackaged, repackaged. And I thought, I never get bored with this. Why? Because last time I checked, I am not fully living into the Gospel yet. Amen? Are you there yet? Are you all the way? Are you Jesus yet? Okay, so we can never get enough gospel. In fact, um, teacher Blake and, my, and mine, uh, Daryl Johnson says, it's gospelization going on, that we become more and more gospelized. You like that? You become more and more gospelized when you let this truth wash over you and when you respond to it. So this evening what we're going to do is actually pick up the story right after Jesus lays this bomb about being the living water. We're going to look at how the crowds react to him. And I'm going to suggest right now that the crowd's response to Jesus might actually give us clarity on how to respond to him. Would you please stand once again for the reading of the gospel? And I'll be reading John chapter 7, verses 37 through 52 and 8, 12. Here we go. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying... This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, Never 
has a man spoken the way this man speaks? The Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law, it's accursed. And Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, he said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, You're not from Galilee also, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of Zoe, eternal life. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing I want to remind each of us of as we look at this text tonight is that John, the guy who wrote this gospel, this account of Jesus' life, has an agenda. He tells us his agenda in John chapter 20, verse 31. And this is what he says. So that we who read might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in His name we might have eternal life. That's what John is trying to do, to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ. Now, I absolutely love John's Gospel. One of the reasons I love the way he writes is because I just think the way he crafts the Gospel is beautiful. He doesn't write fancy. In fact, his language is actually pretty elementary vocabulary-wise. But... He writes in a way that, oh, he just tells the story so beautifully. Instead of saying, I want you to believe in Jesus, and here are my reasons, point A, point B, point C, like John wasn't the PowerPoint guy, right? He doesn't teach that way. But what John does do is tell us the story of Christ in such a way that it causes us to think and to question and to come to conclusions on our own. In particular, John uses a literary device called irony to do this. He uses irony. Now, the way irony works, just in brief, is that the narrator, that's John, the guy who wrote it, and the audience, that's you and me, we share special information that the characters don't have. That's why I had Bernadette read the prologue earlier. The prologue is written by John. It tells us right in the beginning that John believes Jesus is the Word who was with God, who was God. Now when we read all of the disciples and Jesus' opponents fumbling and stumbling through the Gospels, we kind of share a little smirk with John the author, don't we? Because we know things that those characters don't know. And it helps us to think through what we believe. So here, here's a, maybe a little example that might help. I occasionally play poker, a lot more often before Stella was born. Um, I just play for fun with chips with some friends here. And, uh, well, inevitably, we start off with eight or so people around a table, and I'm usually one of the first four out. I'm just not good at poker. I smile a lot, and I like to talk to people, so that's okay. Anyway, I'm not good at poker. So what that means is, for the next hour or so, I get to stand and watch people play poker, right? I get them drinks and things like that. So, sometimes... 
guys like Ryan are real nice because they're better at poker, and they'll let me see their cards. All right? So I get to see cards of the players, and what is so funny to me is I'll know what's in everyone's hand, and then I'll get to watch people bidding each other up, and they, all they have is like a pair of twos in their hand or something like that. And it's just hilarious to see how they jockey with information that they don't have. In our text this evening, people don't know what to do with Jesus. If the text were a poker game, some people are thinking, hey, maybe he's got a pair of queens. Others, he might even have a pair of aces. But what they don't know, and what John's already told us in his prologue, is that Jesus has got a royal flush, and they've just yet to figure it out. So let's see how this plays out. Jesus' offer of living water caused a division in the crowds. Some were saying, this is the prophet. This is the prophet. Now, this saying, the prophet, comes from Deuteronomy 18.18. It was this prophecy where God said, Someday, I'm going to send another prophet like Moses, one who will lead you into the end times, one who will lead you into the coming kingdom. And so the people had just seen how Jesus provided bread in the wilderness and how he offered living water. And they would have remembered, oh, wait a minute. God provided bread in the wilderness through Moses. God provided water out of a rock through Moses. Maybe this Jesus guy is the prophet we've been waiting for. Okay, so that was what one group said. Now, there was another group who said, hey, maybe this Jesus is the Christ, which is Greek Christos. That's the same thing as the translation of Messiah. Messiah. This is the anointed one who is also going to come and, and help deliver. Messiah and prophet were two different folks. Um, and so another group thought maybe Jesus was this Messiah. Now, secretly, Jesus is neither of those two. He's more than those two. Jesus fulfilled all the things the prophet was going to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled all the role of the Messiah. But what the people weren't expecting is that God himself would come. And that's actually what Jesus is. He's bigger than just the prophet and just the Messiah. All right, but we're going to, we'll get there. Now, there's this third group of people who had a hard time thinking of Jesus as the Messiah because they said, hey, this guy Jesus, he grew up in Galilee. But doesn't the scripture say in Micah 5.2 that Jesus is going to come from Bethlehem, that he'd be born in the city of David? Hmm. Now, this is what I'm talking about with irony. I think John is genius. Remember, John's a historian, right? He has a whole lifetime of Jesus to fit into 21 chapters. He gets to choose what comments and what dialogues he gets to put in here. So he's not making any of this up, but he's taking an actual conversation that happened, and here's why it's genius, I think. You see, John wrote his gospel probably decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The people reading John would probably know that Jesus did come from Bethlehem. He grew up in Galilee, but he was born in Bethlehem. Now the people in the story don't know that, but we, the reader, does. We do. So let's say you're one of John's original audience. You've heard a lot about Jesus, but you still haven't made up your mind yet. Maybe you don't know, uh, you know if you really want to follow him. You don't know if you can trust him for eternal life. You're not sure if he is who he claimed to be. You're not sure if he is who the church claims him to be. 
After all, you know there's lots of people during Jesus' own lifetime who didn't trust him, who didn't believe in him. But now, you're reading this gospel, and for the first time you see how foolish the arguments against him were. Even people who don't believe that Jesus is anything special believe that he's born in Bethlehem. I mean, any, any, any most biblical scholars, even if they don't even believe in the Bible, believe Jesus came from Bethlehem. Here, his opponents don't even realize where he's from. Okay? The first readers of the gospel would have gone, wow, how are they wrong, right? And the, the, the effect is the same on us. When we read this, we can't help but smile at the irony, how off they are. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So here's these opponents of Jesus saying, now nah, he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. And we say, he was born in Bethlehem. I mean, isn't this great? I love this. So anyway, but there's more. John doesn't mention, John doesn't mention that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. I think for two reasons. The first reason I just mentioned, I think he doesn't mention it on purpose to set up the irony. If you have to explain the irony, it's not very funny, right? It's like when you're trying to tell a joke and then you didn't get it. Let me explain it. It's just not funny anymore. So John doesn't include that Jesus is born in Bethlehem to set up this ironic situation. Plus he assumes his audience already knows it. But the second reason John doesn't mention that Jesus is born in Bethlehem is that all along John is trying to be... John's been trying to tell us something much more important. Not so much where Jesus was born, but where he was from. All along through John's gospel, we've been seeing that Jesus is from heaven. That he was sent from the Father. Hmm. To John, Jesus' identity as the one sent from the Father... His identity as the Word made flesh, as the one through whom all things were created, this identity is much more important than the, than the city he was born in. Come on, isn't this a little fun? I mean, this is cool. So, there's a division among the crowds. You've got three factions at least. Those are just the ones that John mentions. And when you think about it, division, faction, controversy follow Jesus wherever he goes. You know, I think that kind of the mainstream media around us today kind of, uh, I don't know, how about we can say this, kind of castrates Jesus a little bit. Like, they make him this benign figure who's always staring off into the space like this and, and certainly not a man who would ever ruffle any feathers or make any waves. Does that even come close to jiving with Scripture? How does a man who doesn't make any waves and not ruffle any feathers, get himself executed on a cross. That just doesn't jive. The truth is that we have to come to grips with the fact that when we follow Jesus or when we deal with Jesus, He is controversial. He made, just a, just a few verses ago, an unbelievable claim to be the living water. Chapter 6, He says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus is making himself out to be God in the flesh. Jesus is, is saying, hey, this kingdom's coming in me and I'm the king. And you know what that does? That makes people respond. It makes people respond. 
when you're confronted with claims like that, sitting on the fence isn't really an option. Plus, it's not comfortable, but it's not an option at all. John is helping us see that either we can love and trust Jesus, or we can reject Him. We just can't sit on the fence, though, because think about it. Not making a decision is making a decision to stay where you're at. So, a division has occurred among the people. It turns out that Jesus caused such a commotion because of his claims that the priests and Pharisees, the social elite, the ones who were not only ruling the religion, but ruling the town, really, these guys wanted to have Jesus arrested and killed. Now, the officers come back. The officers who work for the priests, these are the temple guards, they come back (laughs) empty-handed. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If you've ever been in the military been in the civil services, police, something like that, if you've ever been on a sports team, or know someone who's been in one of those things, when a superior tells you to do something, to drop and give you 20, or to go arrest somebody, or to do this or do that, you better do it. You know, it, it doesn't really jive like when you're, the football coach tells you to run wind sprints and you, and you just start jogging like this. Like You better have a good reason why you're not doing what that person said to do, what that person of authority said to do. So these officers come back empty-handed. And what's their story? Did Jesus run away? Did he do like Neo on Matrix and like beat him up? Did the crowds defend Jesus? What on earth could have kept these officers from bringing back Jesus arrested? Well, what if it was something that wasn't from earth? How did the officers respond? Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. This is amazing. The common folks, they may not fully understand Jesus, who he really is, but at least they see he's more than just a man. Maybe he's the prophet, maybe he's the Christ. Even the officers are so confronted by Jesus' words and deeds that they can't bring themselves to arrest Him. They may not fully get Him yet, but they couldn't lay hands on Him. But the religious leaders, the priests and Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to be all educated about Scripture, the ones who are really supposed to be tight with God, they want to have Jesus arrested. Now here's some more irony. These officers who work for the authorities, the priests, they disobey and they follow and they they don't arrest Jesus because of his words of what? Authority. And some of the other gospels, there's a lot made out of the fact that no one speaks like this man for he speaks as one with authority. Wow. The officers were willing to disobey orders Because of Jesus' words. No one has ever made such claims. No one has ever spoken with such wisdom. But, there's even more to the officer's statement than meets the eye. The officers say that they've never heard a man, an anthropos, literally, they've never heard a human being speak the way this man has. Could it be that's because Jesus is not a mere man? John's prologue tells us that he is the Word made flesh, who was from the beginning with God, who was very God. 
Now the Pharisees, absolutely furious. They had studied the law. They were authorities on such matters. And in their minds, these crowds, they had been led astray. Even their very temple guards, they had been led astray too. Why? Because those people are ignorant compared to the high priestly class. And then they say, and this is great, no one of the Pharisees has gone after him. Like they're this elite class that they would never be duped by this, this guy Jesus. And get ready for the ironic bomb. This one's great. Enter Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? We met him in chapter 3. Jesus referred to him as the teacher of Israel. I mean, Nicodemus wasn't just a Pharisee. He was of the elite ruling class. This guy was one of their main teachers of the law. When he first encountered Jesus, he came at night to avoid detection. He didn't want to be embarrassed by his buddies. But he admitted that he and some of the other Pharisees, they believed that Jesus must have been from God in order to be doing the things he was doing. And Jesus says, Hey, you've got to be born again. You need to be born from above, from the very Spirit of God. Nicodemus gets all confused and he ends up believing. And John never tells us if he believed in Jesus or not. We haven't heard about Nicodemus until now. And here we meet a different Nicodemus, a bolder Nicodemus. He, ta- he takes a risk and he calls out his own peers. He almost is confronting them and like calling them hypocrites. And this is why. The leaders were bragging about how they knew the law so well. But they were breaking their own law by trying to have Jesus arrested and killed before they ever heard his testimony. Their law said that Jesus had to give testimony of why he was doing what he was doing. And they were willing to break the law just to shut him up. Nicodemus, you know, I don't think he's a full disciple yet. But he sure is on the road, isn't he? He's willing to stand up, to risk his reputation no longer in the darkness. Now he's in broad daylight. He's confronting his peers and saying, Wait a minute, you guys are breaking the law and just trying to arrest Jesus without trial. Nicodemus wasn't 100% sure about Jesus. But he's on the road because he's willing to think And he's willing to question. How about you? How about you? Here's a warning. When you're willing to be open with Jesus, you open yourself up to ridicule by those who would rather not think. That's exactly what happens to Nicodemus. His peers snidely remark, you're not from Galilee also, are you? I mean, Galilee is like considered this ho-dunk town. You're not from the sticks too, are you? One of them. And then his peers dive even deeper into their foolishness. They say, search and see. No prophet comes out of Galilee. Actually, two prophets come out of Galilee. Hosea and Jonah. They both wrote books. They're in the Old Testament. Guess what Hosea 6.2 talks about? About being raised up on the third day. 
What day was Jesus raised up on? Third day. This only becomes ironic and funny and a teaching point because you and I have the rest of Scripture. Because John's original readers would have known something of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They would have known the story of resurrection on the third day. The prophet Jonah was in the dark belly of a fish for how many days? Three. Three days. He was delivered on the third day. Just like Jesus. Hmm. I'm just saying. Now, the only irony is not only that the Pharisees were wrong. The irony is even more that two prophets came out of Galilee that foreshadowed Jesus' resurrection. Even more ironic, and just out of this world cool, is that the Pharisees used this word, arises. See that no prophet arises out of Galilee. You know this word arises is the Greek, egeritai. Egeritai. Almost every time egeritai is used in the New Testament, you know what it refers to? Resurrection. Resurrection. Who knew being wrong, they could be so right? You know what I'm saying? Like, this happens all the time in John's Gospel. He shows how these opponents of Jesus speak better than they know. They are dead set that no prophets come out of Galilee. No prophets arise out of Galilee. And in that one statement, John's readers would know, wait a minute, two prophets come out of Galilee. They both have to do with the resurrection. And why are the Pharisees using this word, agarita? I'm Oh, so cool. It foreshadows Jesus' resurrection. It makes us think. It makes us think. But, if you like the more direct approach, consider Jesus' next statement. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. Do you remember how I told you there were four huge candelabras in the court of women that lit up the whole place all throughout the Feast of Tabernacles? What I didn't mention is that on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they did not light those candelabras. Why? To remind themselves that God's full salvation had not yet come. That God had not returned in the, to, to, to be with them in His presence. That God's kingdom had not yet come. So, on the last day of the festival, Jesus gets up in the dark without the candelabras, and that's when He says, I am the light of the world. And you put that with John's prologue that, that Bernadette read e- earlier, and... Oh, it's just all coming together. There was a true light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man, woman, and child. The world was made through Him. But the world didn't know Him. He came to His own. To the human race. But those who were His own did not receive Him. But to everyone who received him, to those who believed in his name, who trusted him, 
To them he gave the right to become, become children of God. Never has a man spoken like this man speaks. He is the light. He is the presence of God the people were waiting for. Israel was supposed to be the light. They were supposed to live in such a way that they would attract all the nations to come find out who God was, how He created the universe, how He loved all people. But like all people do, Israel failed in their mission. And God came to do what people couldn't. In Jesus, He shows us the way to full and abundant life. He comes to pour out His Spirit upon us that we might live the way we were created to live. People don't always like the light. Because what light does is it exposes. It exposes who we really are. When the light shines on me, I'm laid out on a table. All my sin, all my shame, all the things that I think about or don't think about that I'd be ashamed to share, it's there. That's why so many people run from the light. That's why maybe you've been running from the light. But I've got good news. All of our hidden thoughts and deeds, our past deeds, our sinful desires, we don't need to be ashamed of them before God. Jesus cancels our debt. He calls us out of the darkness into the light. He not only forgives us and promises us eternal life, but He gives us His very Spirit. A reminder that He's with us and for us. A spirit that enables us to remember these things are true, even on our darkest days, even those days we're depressed, even those days we've failed, even those days people have failed us. He came to give us life. No man, no man has spoken the way this man speaks. Where are you? with that statement. The light of the world has come. His radiance, yeah, it exposes us. It exposes us, but in truth, there's also freedom and life. Maybe you are hungry for the bread of life, thirsty for the living water, and just wishing you were walking in the light. If that's a desire for you this evening, you can pray with me. Jesus, I just want to thank you that you're not through with us yet. No matter where we are on the spectrum of faith, whether we're coming to you for the first time right now or been walking a long time but it seems like we're not getting anywhere, 
Lord, we're hungry for you and thirsty for you and desperate for you to be light in our lives. Once you come, have your way in us. Help us to trust you, Lord. In a world that's always changing and unpredictable, help us to trust you for our rock of salvation.